0: Welcome to the Owl Once Was Lost podcast. We are the companion podcast to the free phone app for Android and Apple devices where we can get info on a missing person out and into the eyes and ears of people in the local vicinity and all of this happening in real time. So please consider downloading the app now and being a part of the solution. The more people that have the app, the better chance of locating a missing person. So this report is being provided by the storiesoftheunsolved.com where you can find a repository of many unsolved, missing, and murdered cases all at your fingertips. So you can get a ton of information there. You can download the app and episode at owl oncewaslostcom and read about this and all the other missing person cases as mentioned at storiesoftheunsolved.com. Please also remember that we need the simple step of hitting the five-star review on the Apple reviews, which helps us in being found in the podcast algorithms. It only takes a second and we would greatly appreciate it. It goes a really long way. um, And we need those. We see the uh, podcast is growing uh, each week, each month. We're getting more and more people. So we just need people to go ahead and, uh, and subscribe as well as hitting the, Five star or anything, any review—it doesn't matter. Just you know, getting talking to us and um, you know, even making suggestions on cases. There's a lot of things that you can do. We'll bring you more information on that on the next episode. So this is the story of Lisa Renee Wilson, Julie Ann Mosley, and Mary Rachel Trelika. On the morning of December twenty third, nineteen seventy four, Lisa Renee Wilson, Julie Ann Mosley and Mary Rachel Trillica traveled to the Seminary South Shopping Center in Fort Worth, Texas, to do some Christmas shopping. Lisa and Mary, who both went by their middle names, were friends, and Julie was the sister of Renee's boyfriend, Terry Mosley. Rachel and Renee had initially planned to go shopping with Terry, but he made plans to visit a friend in the hospital. Julie wanted to go along with them, but was told she needed permission from her mother, Rayanne. She was able to get permission after complaining about having no one to play with at home, but was told she needed to be home by 6 p.m. The curfew was no issue as Renee was to attend a Christmas party that evening with Terry and wanted to be home by 4 p.m. to get ready. At 12 p.m., the girls departed and first traveled to the Army-Navy surplus store to retrieve some jeans Renee had on layaway. They then drove to the shopping center, parking Rachel's 1974 Oldsmobile 98 in the upper parking level near the Sears outlet. Witnesses would later inform police they'd seen the girls inside the mall throughout the afternoon and it's their belief they returned to the car at some point in to drop off items. What happened after is where the mystery begins. When the girls failed to return home, Their families became concerned and drove over to the Seminary South Shopping Center to search for them. And Terry was charged with staying staying at home by the phone in case somebody called with information about their whereabouts. Rachel's Oldsmobile was discovered in the parking lot at at approximately 6 p.m. and it was locked and there was a single present on the backseat floorboard. There were no signs of the girls nor signs of a struggle in or around the vehicle. The families waited at the mall all night, and Ramey's mother, Judy Wilson, had them paged at each of the stores and called upon local hospitals and the police, while Rusty Arnold and his mother went from store to store looking for them. Richard Wilson and a neighbor climbed onto the roof of a nearby building with a shotgun and stood watch over the automobile overnight. Each of the girls' friends were called, but they'd heard nothing. And with the police informed, the case was handed over to the Youth Division of the Fort Worth Police Department's Missing Persons Bureau. Police initially believed that three had ran away, but their families felt otherwise. However, due to the runaway distinction, the case wasn't investigated as thoroughly as it should have for the first year. This meant Mary's car wasn't processed for evidence nor did investigators dust for fingerprints. The runaway theory was further spurred by a letter Rachel's husband, Thomas, received in the mail on the morning of December 24th, 1974. It was in the mailbox and addressed to Thomas from Rachel. It stated that the girls had gone to Houston for the week and provided directions to where the car was parked at the mall. So it stated, quote, I know I'm going to catch it, but we just had to get away. We're going to Houston, see you in about a week. The car is in the Sears upper lot, love, Rachel. The letter had been written on a sheet of paper that was wider than the envelope in which it had been placed and the writing was termed as childish scrawl. The stamp on the envelope had been canceled at the morning it arrived at the Arnold residence and there was no city on the postmark, only a blurry postal service number 76083. The 3 was printed backwards, leading some to believe the last two numbers had been hand-loaded in a stamp. If this were indeed the case, then the letter was stamped in either Ellisville or Throckmorton. However, others feel the final two numbers were meant to read 88, meaning it was postmarked in Weatherford, Texas. Both Rachel's mother and Thomas believed the letter wasn't written by her, as she affectionately called her husband Tommy, and the letter had been addressed to Thomas A. Trilka. Handwriting tests proved inconclusive, and investigators are still unsure of the writer's identity. It was initially believed Rachel had been forced to write the letter, or did so of her own volition, but this assumption has since changed. The original loop in the L of Rachel appeared to have originally been a lowercase e, leading some to believe it was initially a spelling error. The letter remains the only piece of physical evidence investigators have in the case. And when DNA technology was developed, it was sent for testing, but no matches were found to anyone in the police database nor to the girls. At the time of the trio's disappearance, Rachel's sister, Deborah, was living with her and Thomas. Thomas and Deborah had previously been engaged, but the relationship had never been too serious, and the pair ended up calling off their wedding. They stated it wasn't uncomfortable having the three of them living under the same roof. And it's the belief of some members of the Mosley, Wilson, and Arnold families that Deborah knows more about the disappearances than she's letting up on. They sent her a letter after an interview with her was published in the Fort Worth Star-Telegram in 2000. In it, they asked her to divulge any information she might have and to fully cooperate with the Fort Worth Police Department and the FBI investigations. They also asked her to take a polygraph test. Deborah maintained she knows nothing about their disappearances, and the three families distributed missing persons flyers across Texas and contacted newspapers throughout the United States in order to spread awareness about the disappearances. A store clerk came forward saying a woman had approached her to say she'd witnessed Renee, Rachel, and Julie being hustled into a yellow pickup truck parked by the Budding's grocery store at the mall on the day they vanished. This was similar to an 81 report from another witness. who would said he'd seen an unidentified male force a girl or girls into a van in the mall's parking lot. When he'd approached the group, the man had told him it was a family dispute and to stay out of it. Both stories have not been verified by police and investigators Have never been able to locate the woman who'd spoken to the cashier. Investigators interviewed a night watchman who was working at Alcon Laboratories just down the street from the Seminary South Shopping Center on the night of the disappearances. He'd reported seeing a car containing three women and two men pulling into the building's driveway that night, and unfortunately, the lead was a dead end. They also spoke to a ticket agent at the local bus depot after he claimed three girls had asked about trips to Houston and other destinations the morning after Renee, Rachel, and Julie disappeared. However, they aren't sure the information is reliable. A few weeks after the disappearance, the families hired a well-known psychic named Jay Joseph. He offered his services free of charge and donated money to a growing reward fund. He told them he had a sense something was wrong with the letter allegedly sent by Rachel and that he had a feeling the trio had gone north towards Oklahoma or Illinois. He also stated they were being held against their will, and dope is possibly involved along with three other people, or possibly five. While at the Arnold home, he shared an ominous message along the lines of, if they never saw him again, it was a sign the girls were deceased. He never did speak to or visit them again. In 1975, a man claiming to be an acquaintance of Rachels came forward to say he'd seen the three girls at a record store in the mall a few hours before they went missing. He'd noticed another individual with the group, and he and Mary had spoken briefly. That same year, women's clothes were found just in Texas. While initially thought to belong to one of the missing girls, they were later determined to be not related to the case. And the families hired private investigator John Swaim in 1975, and due to their frustration over how the police were handling the investigations, he called numerous press conferences and forced investigators to allow him access to the case files. Throughout the year, he made national headlines with one report stating that an unidentified man had tried to collect the reward money in exchange for offering what turned out to be false information information as to the girls' whereabouts. In April of 75, Swain traveled to Port Lavaca, Texas, with a group of 100 volunteers to search beneath local bridges after a tip came in saying the girls' bodies had been dumped in that area. The city had previously been searched by investigators who'd uncovered nothing. The same was true with Swain's search. In August of that year, he discovered that a 28-year-old man was making a string of obscene phone calls in the area. He'd worked at a local store where Rachel had applied for a position prior to her her disappearance. And it was learned he'd once lived in the same neighborhood as her. Nothing ultimately came from this lead, but it was learned he'd been using his position at the store to collect information from young women. A total of six female applicants reported receiving crude phone calls from him. In 1976, three skeletons were found in a field in Brazoria County, Texas by an oil drilling crew. Swain had the remains checked against x-rays and dental records, but they turned out to belong to one male between the age of 15 and 17 and two other females. Swain died in 79 of an apparent suicide. Upon his death, he requested all his records be destroyed. It's currently unclear if those files contained anything legitimate Regarding the case, throughout the course of the search, the families have been subjected to prank phone calls, and Renee's parents had to purchase a secondary phone because the random individuals kept calling and claiming to be either their missing daughter or somebody else close to the case. In 1999, Rachel's brother Rusty contacted private investigator Dan James to help further the investigation. The pair looked into several witness sightings of Rachel and Renee at stores and gas stations in the days following their disappearances. There are additional reports that Rachel has since been seen in the Fort Worth area during numerous Christmas seasons. Both Rusty and James believe Renee and Julie are deceased, but cite the recent witnesses as evidence, Rachel is likely still alive. They believe an unidentified report A person or persons are keeping her away from her family, but they have refused to share what, if any, evidence they have to support this claim. In December of 1999, James offered a $25,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of those responsible for the girl's disappearances. He is also one of the sponsors of MissingTrio.com, a website offering updates and information regarding the case. He offered the money from his own savings and maintains he's never received any financial compensation for the work he's put into the investigation. James has said he's received death threats from anonymous callers warning him to remove himself from the investigation. The case was officially reopened by investigators in January of 2001. And a few months later, in April 2001, they held a press conference where they shared They'd interviewed at least 20 new witnesses who'd seen the girls at the mall on the afternoon of December 23rd of 1974. They also shared that they'd narrowed down the possible suspects to just five individuals. That same month, a former Fort Worth policeman and security guard at the Seminary South Sears outlet approached news station KXAS NBC5 with information he had regarding the case. He claimed to have seen three girls and a young male security guard inside a pickup truck at approximately eleven thirty p m on the evening of their disappearances. The girls appeared relaxed and were in the vehicles willingly laughing and exchanging words before the security guard drove away with them in the truck when they left, the youngest girl was sitting next to the driver, the second eldest in the middle, and the oldest next to the passenger side door, and According to the witnesses. He'd contacted police just a few days after word spread of the girl's disappearances, but that investigator failed to follow up with his information until April of 2001. When approached by the media, investigators said they'd located the security guard scene with the girls, but that he denied they were in his vehicle that evening. Over the years, the families have had to deal with claims that their bodies have been located. Unfortunately, None of these remains have proven to belong to either of the three girls. And investigators have also searched through state medical examiner records in New Mexico for unidentified females, but had no luck. The trio's dentals and DNA are available for comparison should the remains be found. In September 2018, Rusty, with the help of the Texas Equus search, organized an effort to raise two submerged cars out of Benbrook Lake. It was believed the cars were connected to the case, so a GoFundMe campaign was set up to pay for the drive from North Texas marine salvage and the equipment needed to do the job. Rusty was led to the lake after learning about an individual who lived five miles from the mall and whose vehicle went missing in the mid-1970s. The lake is located roughly eight miles from where the shopping center, yet investigators didn't believe there would be enough evidence to warrant a search which spurred Rusty to organize his own search effort. The first car was pulled on September 22nd 2018 and the second on October 13th. Five scientists were brought in to analyze them, but neither was determined to be related to the case. Their VIN numbers were collected in case they were connected to other unsolved cases in the area, and there is a third car still beneath the waters of Benbrook Lake. Rusty had planned to bring it up, but it was found to be too dangerous a job given how disintegrated the frame had become whilst submerged. Crimestoppers has issued a $1,000 reward for information leading to a resolution to the case, and Rusty once received a call from a woman claiming to be Julie. She'd contacted him over skepticism over the upbringing, believing she'd been abducted as a child. She'd seen a picture of Julie online and tracked down Rusty. After seeing her picture, both he and Julie's mother thought it possible he was the missing girl, but DNA tests came back negative. According to investigators, the last time they had lead was in 2001, when they collected DNA evidence. Due to the active nature of the investigation, the results have not yet been shared with the public. It is their belief the girls left the shopping center with somebody they trusted and met with foul play. Few details have been released regarding the investigation, which has frustrated the families. Richard Wilson claimed to have been lied to about potential searches in the case. In one story relayed to FW Weekly, he said he'd been told by officers they were going to look into a lead that the trio's bodies were at the bottom of a well in Alito, Texas. Richard decided to follow and trailed them to a Paris coffee shop on the near south side before they returned to the station and called the family to say that nothing had been found. It's incredible. They'd never actually traveled to the Wells location that day. Thousands of leads have been investigated and dozens of searches completed throughout the course of the investigation. Searches have been combed through the Texas brush and have explored hundreds of back roads while the families have walked along creek beds and country roads. Cotton Trilka passed away of stage four melanoma to six months after his daughter's disappearance. Her mother remarried a few years later and Thomas left Fort Worth, remarried and went on to become a supervisor at a Texas-based water company. He'd initially believed the girls would be found within a few days and put up a $2,000 reward. But less than two years later, he requested a divorce from Rachel on the grounds of abandonment. He since remarried numerous times. Renee's family still resides in her childhood home in the Fort Worth area. Throughout the initial search, Richard participated in numerous volunteer efforts and knocked on neighbors' doors in the pursuit for answers. And in 2015, Judy passed away due to pulmonary hypertension. Rusty continues to look into the case almost daily. He has worked with several private investigators and searched various areas across Texas including a bayou in Port Lavaca and wrecking yard in Kennendale. He also runs the missing Fort Worth trio Facebook group. And according to Rusty, his pursuit for answers has frayed his relationship with his mother and sister. Fran believes Rusty's obsession is partially the result of Dan James involvement in the investigation and blames him for how the case has destroyed her family. For two decades after Julie's disappearance, Rayanne broke down, visiting psychiatrists and psychologists. She has even spent some time in the hospital, in order to explore her pain and move on with her life. She began journaling her thoughts. She has since passed away without her ever knowing what happened to her daughter. The case has been featured on numerous podcasts, including the popular Trace Evidence podcasts. Lisa Renee Wilson went missing from the Seminary South Shopping Center in Fort Worth, in te- Texas, on December 23, 1974. She was 14 years old and was last seen wearing a purplish blue hip hucker pants, red and white sneakers, her Oxford-type shoes, and a promise ring with a single stone. She also had on either a pale yellow or green shirt, or a white pullover sweatshirt with the word sweet honey imprinted in green along the front. She is commonly addressed by her middle name, and at the time of her disappearance, she stood between five foot two and weighed approximately 110 pounds. She had shoulder-length wavy brown hair and reddish highlights, and brown eyes. She is fair-skinned with acne, and she has a scar on the inside of her thigh. Mary Rachel Trilka, Nee Arnold, went missing from the Seminary Cell Shopping Center in Fort Worth, Texas. On December 23rd, 1974, she was 17 years old and aside from her wedding ring, what she was wearing is currently unknown. She is commonly addressed by her middle name and at the time of her disappearance, she stood at five foot six and weighed approximately 108 pounds. She had long brown hair and green eyes. Her upper front tooth is chipped and she has a small scar on her chin. Julianne Mosley went missing from the Seminary South Shopping Center in Fort Worth, Texas, On December 23, 1974. She was nine years old and was last seen wearing a red shirt, a pair of dark jeans and red tennis shoes. At the time of her disappearance, she stood at four foot three inches and weighed 85 pounds. She had shoulder length, light brown hair to sandy blonde hair and blue eyes. She had a small scar under her left eye and one on the middle of her forehead and a round scar on the back of her calf. Currently, all three cases are classified as non-family abductions. If alive, Renee would be 60 years old, Rachel would be 63, and Julie would be 56. Those with information regarding the case are asked to contact the Fort Worth Police Department at 817-877-8345. Tips can also be called into the Tarrant County District Attorney's Office at 817-496. 9402, or the Texas Department of Public Safety's Missing Persons Clearinghouse at 512-424-5074. So that's going to do it for this episode. We'll see you all in the next one.